0: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
1: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022, Presidential politics and public health collided as never before when journalist Bob Woodward released audio in which President Trump says he deliberately played down the threat of the coronavirus. And with less than two months before Election Day, candidates had to absorb all that while stepping up their get-out-the-vote efforts. And speaking of votes, the Secretary of State said about a 1,000 people voted twice in this year's primary elections. We're glad you elected to spend some time with us on this edition of The Political Breakfast. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Republican strategist Brian Robinson is with us again. Filling in for Democratic strategist Theron Johnson this time, we're happy to welcome Nabila Islam, a Democrat and former candidate for Congress in the 7th Congressional District, Glad you both are here.
0: Good to be here.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: In the middle of the week, we got to hear President Trump admit to journalist Bob Woodward that he misled the country about the severity of the coronavirus outbreak and that he knew about it in January. Now, it's hard to figure out where to start here, Brian, but let's begin with this November's elections and the effect of all of this here in Georgia there haven't been many developments that have actually moved the polling numbers for Donald Trump or Joe Biden nationwide, or even here in Georgia. Even if we grant that movable voters are in fact a small percentage in this state, is this revelation something that could move the needle for some of them?
0: No, I don't think anything is going to move his core voters off of him. In fact, if you look at his core voters, I think they probably agree with him. That we should have emphasized the economy on the front end and not let it just completely implode. So his people are going to be with him, and I don't think that's going to change. And it's not like we are two months from an election, and Donald Trump is saying things that are shocking and newsworthy and get people talking. This is part of what he does, and it's never made a tremendous difference in what his numbers are from day to day. So People just let it wash over them to some degree. And look, as I've always said, Trump's voters take him seriously, but not literally. His detractors take him literally, but not seriously. And I think this is just another example of that.
2: Well, Brian, I actually disagree with you. I think it's absolutely going to have an effect on our elections coming up. I think that him knowing how deadly this was, and he went ahead and said, later on that he thought that we were going to have zero cases soon enough. And at one point he called it a hoax. I agree with you in the sense that his space will probably stay with him no matter what, but what the Republican party has been losing, what polls are showing and focus groups are showing is that suburban voters across the country Are turned off by Trump. And I'm telling you, this audio is going to turn them off even more. And these are some of the folks that voted for him in 2016. And I just don't see how they find themselves voting for him again in 2020. Yes, he says crazy things all the time, but the cost of him not leading when he needed to has cost over 190,000 American lives of people that are not with their families today. And I think people are really going to feel that.
1: Now, if you're in Republican Senator David Perdue's campaign facing Democrat John Ossoff, his briefing on the coronavirus has already been sort of meat for John Ossoff's ads. Now, on top of the financial stuff, we have briefings on the coronavirus and the threat, and now the president is saying he downplayed it. Brian, how do you respond to this in the Perdue campaign? given that Purdue is one of the president's closest allies in the Senate.
0: There's no doubt, and I think Nabila gave us some foreshadowing of what's coming, that Democrats are going to jump onto this. Even when it came out, Joe Biden was immediately talking about this issue. But if you look at what Trump said, he was asked about it at a news conference on Wednesday, and he said, look, yeah, I would do the same thing. I don't want to incite panic amongst the population. That would hurt our economy and could have other repercussions. If you look at how well our economy has done as far as rebounding, certainly there's still a lot of pain out there. There's still a lot of economic growth that we need to recapture. But unemployment today is not what it was during the Great Recession. In Georgia, actually, it's even better than the national average. And we're one that opened up a little bit earlier. I don't think that Republican voters and Trump's base really wanted us to take even stricter lockdown procedures back in the spring. We saw the economic damage, and I think Republicans are looking around them and going, this isn't as bad as the Democrats say it is. And they can disagree with that, but I think a lot of them maybe don't know people who've gotten really sick or died, or have seen people who are asymptomatic or had mild symptoms. And I think that that has colored how they've approached this issue.
2: The excuse of you know not mentioning it earlier because they didn't want people to panic because they didn't want to hurt the economy—it's very—it's a disheartening excuse. I don't believe it. Um, look, you can always rebuild in an economy, but you can never bring back the life of a loved one. And the people that have been hit the most by COVID are Black and Brown people. They're working people, and our lives shouldn't be expendable just so that you can keep the economy going. People in Gwinnett County have been hit pretty hard here and we're human beings too. And I think that the delay in taking this virus seriously has certainly hurt our communities more than it ever should have. And as far as the rhetoric coming out of Ossoff's campaign in terms of the argument that Purdue is not taking this seriously or the fact that he did traded stocks after that briefing He should keep driving that in because it makes him seem out of touch and it makes it seem like he doesn't care about the American people. He just cares about his pocketbook.
0: I do want to push back on that because black and brown people are affected by the economy too. And in fact, many of them are in the service sector, which has been the worst hit by these lockdowns. And economic issues are like a disease, life and death issues. I mean, we have seen a spike in suicides, a spike in mental health disorders this year. Those things are very real and much of that is driven by the economy and uncertainty about the economy. And getting the economy up and going again is important to life and death. And for many Americans, not all, for many, focusing on the economy taking the odds as they are on getting our lives going again, getting our businesses going again was a good bet for many Americans and they would not have had it any differently.
2: Listen. Yes, of course. The economy is incredibly important. Jobs are important. Having money in your bank account to be able to pay for rent and food is incredibly important, but your health is your wealth. (laughs) Um, We've had over 190,000 people die. They're dead. They're never coming back home. And we could have mitigated that number, and it's incredibly irresponsible that our leaders didn't step up to the plate. The buck stops with them. They should have warned us earlier. And listen, this pandemic has affected all countries all over the world, hence being a, a pandemic. But I just feel that we, you know, we feel so much lied to, and it feels like we could have done more and we, we just didn't.
0: This is, this is sort of the beauty of being in the minority, right? Of not having the White House. This was always going to be a matter of trade-offs and Trump- and to some degree, Governor Kemp has had to walk that line to not only look on saving lives and keeping people healthy, but also keeping our economy going so that people can support themselves. And We've already seen terrible damage. I'm seeing it right here in areas around my neighborhood, a spike in homelessness. There was a talk on Brookhaven Next Door site this week about families with young children living in the woods in some commercial areas is tragic and it's heartbreaking. We need to think about people like them too.
1: The debate you guys are having right now about choices and information goes directly back to Senator Perdue. And I wanna go to a quote from him from earlier this year. It caused a bit of a stir when that audio was leaked. It was a Zoom call with the Rome Floyd chamber back in May. And what caught a lot of attention at that time was a section where the senator compared the risks of COVID to the risks a person takes when driving a car. But it's another section just a few sentences later that I want to bring up. The senator was quoted as saying, and these are his words, each of us in a representative democracy have the freedom to make that determination about the risk level for me as an individual. In a situation like this, as long as we have good information, we can make our own decisions. Brian, the issue now is, by the president's own words, we didn't have good information. And the Democrats are going to be arguing Senator Perdue knew it.
0: Well, the question presupposes that the only source of information on the disease for the American people was President Trump. And that was never the case, even from day one. There's but been, isn't
1: President Trump the biggest leader and driver of decisions if he steps forward?
0: The people standing next to President Trump in those news conferences, remember back when we used to have them every day for a matter of hours, and it was just this incredible theater that everybody in the country was tuned into? He was surrounded by Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, the Surgeon General, and they were driving a very consistent message about the seriousness of the disease, how deadly it is, and the proper precautions to protect yourself and your family. So I can't imagine that anybody didn't have access to good information about what to do. At no point in time did I watch those news conferences and go, you know, I really trust President Trump's advice on this more than I do Dr. Birx or Dr. Fauci. Now, I know some people did, but... You could watch what was going on and make an informed decision, to Senator Purdue's point. We all were given information, and we could make informed decisions.
2: I respect Dr. Fauci a lot and uh, take his word. But I will say that Donald Trump is the president of the United States and has a megaphone. And it's not just some people that are listening to him. It's millions of people. It's millions of Americans. There were many people that even tried drinking bleach when he talked about injecting bleach to get rid of the virus his words matter. And he's the most powerful man in the world right now, scary enough. And he wasn't forthright when he needed to be. He had the opportunity to inform the American public with the correct information. And he didn't use that opportunity. Instead, lied to us. The man lied to us. And so I think that it's an injustice that this happened and and, and it's cost so many lives.
1: And you said earlier, Democrats need to pound that home. Do you expect that In the Purdue Ossoff race, we'll see that become the center of Ossoff's message.
2: I think it should. I think uh, Ossoff should continue to, um, his campaign should continue to drive that home, that the GOP is not being truthful, and it's been costing so many lives. We have seriously lost lives because of this, and now our businesses are hurting because we haven't been able to contain the coronavirus about a month ago, I, I believe a couple of weeks back, we had the highest infection rate in the entire country. Now we're, we're still up there. We haven't been able to contain it. And so it's hurting our health, public health. It's hurting the economy. And, and it's something that Democrats should absolutely keep driving home.
1: And Brian, very briefly, if you're Senator Perdue, how do you, to coin a phrase, inoculate yourself uh, against this one?
0: I don't know that this is exactly what Republicans are going to be talking about the most going into the campaign. We get to pick what we talk about. And there are many other dividers in this race, such as the riots that are going on, the Defund the Police movement that is so unpopular with Americans and the independence that we need. And I think that there's an understanding amongst independents and persuadables that President Trump didn't cause the pandemic that anyone who was in control was gonna face these same challenges. And I'm hearing that from people who are doing focus groups against Trump, like running messages against Trump. And they're saying, yeah, people don't really blame him for that. That's gonna be a problem with the Democrats picking that issue is that people don't necessarily blame Trump for this.
1: On the other hand, let's suppose, You're in the campaign of Senator Kelly Loeffler or Congressman Doug Collins. Now, they face a different challenge than Senator Perdue does in his race. They have to beat each other out in a combined field that also includes several Democrats. Brian, starting with you, can they stay silent and not defend the president, risking the anger of core GOP voters they need now, but if they go too far in defending him, A Democrat they might face in the runoff will use that against them with moderates and independents who are worried about the virus response.
0: Yeah, they can deal with that in the runoff. You know, they got to get to the runoff, and that is their sole focus. Any one of them who begins to strategize too much about where they need to be positioned from November 4th through January is going to lose. They are in a primary within a special election, and they've got to win that primary, and they are in a very different situation than Raphael Warnock, who is not really in a primary within a special election. Yes, there are other Democrats in there, and they have looked competitive with him in polling up to now, but we've reached the stage where Warnock's advantage in resources and money will begin to make a huge difference, and he'll be able to pull ahead. Now, one thing you've seen up to now is that only Kelly Leffler has been up on the air and people are seeing some positive messages out there that reach across the aisle when she's talking about constituent services, et cetera. And so I think what you are seeing is a lot of Democrats saying, yeah, I like Kelly Leffler. She was saying things on that ad that I like, and that's good. I think for many of those Democrats are going to see now, oh, here's my guy, this guy, Raphael Warnock, he's a Democrat, and that, that's who I am voting for. They just didn't know who the Democrat was yet. They didn't know who their candidate was going to be. And so that's going to shake out in the polls to some degree. And I think that will take hold here in September because we're seeing more and more of Raphael Warnock. But for Doug and Kelly, their focus isn't Raphael Warnock. You won't hear them talking much about him at all. Their focus is each other. And this week you're even seeing competing press releases about endorsements. I mean, literally They came out a minute apart earlier this week with their list of state legislative endorsements. And one thing that I was talking about last week is that David Ralston, the speaker, his endorsement of Doug, would that open the door to more Republican legislators, particularly in the House, stepping out for Doug? And it did. To Kelly's credit. She was able to go out and sort of match it. She brought in another statewide elected official, Mark Butler, onto her side as part of her rollout. So they're working really hard on those things, but their focus is each other, not Raphael Warnock.
1: And Mark Butler is the Labor Commissioner, so he is a statewide elected official. Nabila, your thoughts on the strategies for not uh, the Republicans, certainly, although you were a former Democratic congressional candidate, but also the Democrats, particularly Reverend Warnock, but also his opponents.
2: This race has been very fascinating to watch. I agree with Brian that Loeffler and uh, Doug Collins are running the race that's ahead of them. So they got to get through this primary first. And um, both of them are trying to see who's closer to Donald Trump. The irony of it is, is I feel like Brian Kemp appointed Kelly Loeffler because he thought she'd be, you know, appealing to those suburban white women that have left the Republican Party because of Donald Trump. And now, they're both competing to see who's more closer to the president. You know, Loeffler, because of her wealth, has been able to dump, you know, tens of millions of dollars into the media market. And now people who have been fundraising are able to actually spend the money that they've been raising for the past year. So we're going to see a, uh, the conversation truly shape with all the candidates talking about their positions and who they are and introducing themselves to the public. I think most voters don't pay attention to an election until two months out, anyways. And so we'll definitely start to see the, the voters opinions about these candidates start to shift. As far as Warnock, he's come out for it with a couple of TV ads, and he has the endorsement of Stacey Abrams. And I know that goes a long way in this state. And I'm hoping that we see more of him. I'd love for him to dominate the conversation more. But I feel that in terms of his competitiveness with his um, other Democratic opponents, he seems pretty solid right now.
1: Nabila, as you look at the Democratic candidates here, though, and, and you bring a lot of perspective to this since you've been on campaign staffs, and just recently you were a candidate for Congress yourself, so strategically, do Democrats, particularly in the race for the Leffler seat, just pound away at the president and at the Republicans here on the pandemic response, or do they have to come out with specific plans for other things, even when the pandemic is top of mind?
2: Strategically, I think they should continue to talk about the pandemic. I mean, that's the number one issue right now, and that's affecting our lives on a daily basis. You can't get away from it. And the pandemic isn't just you know, a health issue. It's an, an economy issue. We're talking about jobs. We're talking about how the Congress hasn't extended the $600 unemployment benefit that so many working americans were relying on across the country and how you know let's talk about the housing impending housing crisis we're going to have coming up because people are about to get evicted from their homes because they don't have money to pay for rent during a pandemic we're going to have people on the streets and so this is a, a large conversation that i feel like the democrats should continue to talk about and remind people that we wouldn't have been in this mess If we had, you know, nipped it in the butt earlier. Now, listen, no one's blaming Donald Trump for creating the pandemic. We know it's not his fault. But at the same time, he had the tools to mitigate this and not make it as bad as it is right now. We shouldn't let Republicans get away with not talking about COVID. This is, I think, the number one serious issue on everyone's mind.
0: And look, I think it's everybody's mind. I don't know that it's the number one electoral issue. Because if the Democrats make that their entire platform, they must continue to answer the question that joe biden had to answer would you be in favor of another lockdown and he said yes if scientists said so whoever these scientists are and i don't think anybody wants that you talk about homelessness and joblessness a lockdown is going to make all of that much worse and a lot of these businesses that have survived by a hair are going to tilt over into bankruptcy. That is guaranteed, and we will have an even greater concentration of wealth in this country because all of those small businesses around the country, which is such a wealth generator for families, will go away. So I would love for Democrats to make that the main issue because I don't think it's the main issue, and and they continue to not talk about the riots and have to dance around the defund the police issue that is so unpopular, fine.
1: And there was much more that happened this week, a debate over voting and double voting and a controversy over medical sterilization plants in the area. That and more when The Political Breakfast continues. Stay right here. And we are back on The Political Breakfast. Thanks very much for staying with us. I'm Dennis O'Hare with Republican strategist Brian Robinson and former Democratic 7th Congressional District candidate Nabila Islam. I'm going to come back to the coronavirus and the audio from President Trump's conversation with journalist Bob Woodward, but we've talked a lot about the political fallout from this. Now we've got the public health Fallout here. There's been, of course, a lot of controversy here in Georgia about Governor Brian Kemp's response and whether or not he was too slow to impose restrictions and then too quick to lift them. Let's cast our minds back to late April when the president himself blasted Kemp for reopening, saying, I think it's too soon, and I was not happy with Brian Kemp. This after he and Vice President Pence had privately told Kemp they supported his reopening moves. Brian, in what kind of political and public health position does the Woodward Audio put the governor in right now?
0: The governor has decided to take his own path on this issue. He has consistently said, wear a mask, socially distance. Last week we had Labor Day, and he did a lot of messaging about avoiding large crowds. And if you have to be in a place where you're standing around a lot of people wear a mask. He has not been inconsistent. So I don't know that it really impacts him at all. And I think he's doing a good job right now of messaging the progress that Georgia is seeing. We have had a decrease in the positivity rates of tests. We are seeing a decrease in the amount of daily new cases. So according to Kemp, we are on the right trajectory. The bad numbers are going down. That's a good message for him to focus on, even as he continues to drive the message that we've got to be personally responsible. He wanted to save businesses. And one thing he doesn't get credit for is that our unemployment rate here is less than the national average right now. He could argue that he helped to preserve a lot of businesses and therefore jobs. He this week pointed out that. When it comes to economic development investment, we had a significant increase over the last fiscal year, which is an incredible statistic given all that's going on in the economy with the global recession that we've been in. So I think he's got a really good argument to make. I know Democrats don't like it. I know they would love for us to just be on lockdown from here into eternity because one death is too many. And that's fine. They can make their argument. I'm glad that Kemp led like he did. I think on balance, we are better off because of the decisions that he made.
2: One death is too many. I don't understand how this is like, you know, we shouldn't have to sacrifice grandma in order to keep the economy going. No no one wants to be in a lockdown forever. Like, that's outrageous. I think that um, if we go back to the beginning of all this, we can recall uh, Brian Kemp going on national television and saying that he didn't know asymptomatic people were contagious. I don't know what information he's been basing his decisions off of, but it's not science. You know, we were one of the last states to issue a lockdown and one of the first ones to get out of our lockdown. And, you know, he was publicly rebuked by the president for opening up so early. And even the, you know, the administration said it shouldn't have happened as early as it did. With that being said, you know, we've had over 6,000 Georgians lose their lives to this virus. I saw that article where our positivity rate has gone down, but it's also, uh, we got to look at the number of people that are actually being tested. That's gone down as well. And we're trying to figure out why. People need to continue to get tested and we need to implement contact tracing. Uh, We're seeing a lot of the virus spiking as people go back to school. These college campuses aren't taking this seriously. I think that the safety protocols that we should have taken in the beginning weren't taken. And um, unfortunately, it's hurt a lot of people along the way.
0: You know, I I will push back a little bit on the universities. I think the university system and our individual institutions have been responsible. If you look at the University of Georgia, for example, they've had a huge outbreak amongst students, concerning numbers.
1: More than 1,400 for the final days of August and the first few days of September. That was the latest report that just came out.
0: And what we've also seen Is that there hasn't been a lot of spread amongst professors and other teachers. So, what that suggests is that the spread is not happening in the classroom. It's happening at parties, bars, other get togethers. So, this is not a matter of institutional failure. It's a matter of personal responsibility. And again, what are these students who are adults and who are informed of the dangers? They are taking a calculated risk. I'm young, I'm healthy, I may get it, but I'm likely to have mild symptoms or be asymptomatic. So they're taking a calculated risk.
2: I think we should have implemented a mask mandate. Yes, these students are adults and they can make their own decisions, but their lack of good decision-making is affecting people in the community. It's community spread, right? And So people that have been protecting themselves might get sick because someone that doesn't care to protect themselves might get other people sick. And uh, I've been saying this for months that the governor should um, implement a mask mandate in the same way that the governor of Texas did a Republican governor of Texas implemented a mask mandate. And so I just feel like our culture here in Georgia, people are just not taking this seriously. When I go up to Atlanta, like no one's wearing a mask. People are in restaurants, they're not They take off their masks to eat, sure, but they don't put it back on when they're walking around, when people are out and about not wearing masks. It's just not being taken as seriously as it should be.
1: Coming back just very quickly to Governor Kemp specifically, Brian, even Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who has suffered COVID herself along with her husband and her son, and was sued by the governor over her mask mandate and other local restrictions, seemed You could argue to throw him a bit of a lifeline Wednesday evening during an interview with Wolf Blitzer of CNN about the Woodward audio and the president. And here she is talking about the president.
2: He downplayed it. And not
1: only that, he influenced leaders across this country to also downplay it. Because I immediately thought back to one of the first conversations that I had with our governor. On coronavirus and his comparison with it with the flu. So while the president may have known that his he was misleading others, I don't know that the leader said he was misleading. Knew that they were being misled. So at, at this point, we've heard it. He misled the American people. He misled governors across this country. People have died. Brian, isn't there an argument to be made and? Kemp's experience is possible evidence that the president deliberately downplayed the virus and did nothing, in the view of a lot of his critics anyway, so that he could blame other people, especially governors and mayors, if their responses were either ineffective or counterproductive or just plain unpopular.
0: Again, the president wasn't the only source of information for governors, mayors, and individual Americans to make a decision about what they should do to protect themselves. So I don't know that it gives cover to anybody. And I take the president at his word that the way he talked about the issue wasn't about misleading people. It wasn't about keeping open the back door to blame governors and mayors. It was about not inciting a panic that would cause our economy to collapse. We still needed people to get out to some degree to provide us with food and medicine and then have those delivered to our homes and to grocery stores. So there were things that had to happen. We couldn't have everybody curled up and staying in their home all the time. There is a method to the madness here.
2: I think it's just crisis management for Donald Trump at this point. It just sounds like a talking point that he had to come up with to save himself. He absolutely did mislead the American public. And I think that you know leaders across the country, mayors and governors, were following his lead in doing what they thought was best for their communities, their states. This whole time, I've been talking about how irresponsible he's been, but it's had such a effect um leadership from top to bottom and going back to, will this be an election issue and will it affect elections? Absolutely. I think um, this is really bad for Republicans and I hope that come November, we are able to vote him out.
1: Let's turn to the elections. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger held a news conference this week in which he said some 1,000 people voted twice, and he claimed deliberately did so, during the primary elections earlier this summer. Nabila, I'll start with you. Democrats have argued that voter fraud really doesn't exist in any big measurable levels at all, But if the secretary has evidence that people voted deliberately twice, is this a concern that Democrats are gonna have to answer?
2: So the secretary is absolutely playing politics. He knows that a thousand people did not deliberately try to vote twice. We all know that this past election was incredibly disorganized. I was on the ballot, so I was very hyper aware of what was going on on election day. A lot of people experienced this across the state where at first, remember where they were like, you, were, you have to insert this piece of white paper in if you mail your ballot in. And then it turns out half the people didn't get the piece of white paper. And so they were, it was just so confusing. And then when you were mailing it in, it was taking forever for the counties to register whether or not they had received your ballot. So of course, there were thousands of people that were worried their ballot wasn't counted and they wanted, this election was very important to them. And so they probably showed up to the polls and told the poll workers, you know, I don't think my ballot was counted. Can I vote in person? And then also, I will add, a lot of these poll workers didn't have as much training as they should have, and it was a very confusing process all around. The secretary knows this, but he's throwing out a headline to play politics, and I think it's incredibly irresponsible for him to do so.
1: Brian, the response that Nabila just outlined that voters may have had to uncertainty about their ballots going to the polls after voting by mail is exactly what President Trump has urged his supporters to
0: do. He has done that to make a point that there is the opening for fraud in this election if the system can't immediately identify people who have already cast an absentee ballot. So he's making a broader point there. I don't think he's actually encouraging people to break the law. And as Secretary Rappensberger said, that is a felony punishable by pretty serious fines and even jail time, though I don't. Thinking anybody's going to go to jail for any of this, but I disagree with Nabila that those thousand people didn't know they were voting twice. Getting an absentee ballot isn't something you do passively. You do have to send in your application. You got to get it back, open it up, fill it out. I mean, there's a, there's a process. There's a lot of work that goes into it. You don't do that and then forget that you did it, and then go show up to vote and do another leg of work. So these people did know. Now, where I will give them the benefit of the doubt and where I don't want to see anyone really get punished for this summer's election is because I think some people probably were confused about whether or not their ballots got back and were going to be counted. Now, you've got to be a real conscientious voter to think through all that, but there are some out there who are. What I want to tell people is, you know, I voted absentee in June and in August. And I found it very reassuring that I could go to the Georgia My Voter page, put in my name and birthdate, and it shows that I've received my absentee ballot, and that they have received it back. That DeKalb County has my ballot, and that gave me a lot of peace of mind, and let me to kind of move on without worrying about whether or not my voice was heard. So I encourage people to use that tool. But the Republicans have made the larger point that fraud is possible. I know the media always like to say, as Dennis just said, that there's no evidence of voter fraud. And I reject that until the media also says that there's no evidence of voter suppression anywhere, that this is a complete canard thought up by left-wing groups to fundraise and mobilize their voters.
2: Uh, voter suppression is 100% real. There you go. Expect
0: <laughs> Go right in the- back to the talking target. points. That's good.
2: Um, are you kidding me? On my election day, 20% of uh, machines in Gwinnett County were not operating the morning of, and they were in 80% of Democratic heavy precincts. People have been kicked off the voter rolls, unjustly so. The ACLU just came out with a report saying that there was a 63% error rate in the recent purge that the secretary made in the beginning of this year. Voter suppression affects Black and brown people at an uneven rate. This is something that needs to be addressed. This is something that is absolutely affecting people uh, today, and we should be making it easier to vote, not harder. I think it's irresponsible to say that voter suppression isn't real. Listen, voter fraud happens, but it's at .00006, I think it's five zeros. zeros—like It it barely ever does happen, and I feel like people give that more attention than they do being able to empower people to exercise their constitutional right to vote. Um, That's not a conversation that people on the right have should we make election day a federal holiday? Should we have same day registration? Why not just make it easier to vote? And so, I mean, when we're not making easier to vote, that is also voter suppression.
0: Well, look, (laughs) I love the passion. And, And, you know, when you talk about voter suppression and say it's not real, it's just like, you know, hitting this button and Democrats go crazy. Let's go to that ACLU study. It's completely absurd. The secretary of state's office asked for the data they're using and they won't turn it over because the data won't back up those wild assertions the left particularly fair fight action has sued the state consistently for two years now and they lose in federal court often in front of obama appointed judges because when you scratch the surface nothing they're saying is real it is a fundraising mobilization tactic Now, as far as voting machines not working, that's a problem. It's not voter suppression, but it is a problem and it's got to be fixed. The same issue happened in Floyd County up in Rome, which is an overwhelmingly Republican county, and they had a Republican GOP primary runoff there that day. And for a period of hours, the machines weren't working in most of those Floyd County precincts. So it's not just something targeting Democrats or people who are minority. That's not true. It is a localized issue. Now, I'll tell you the people who probably ran those Democratic precincts in Gwinnett that you're referring to were probably Democrats. If there weren't people who had a partisan agenda to keep Democrats from voting, so it's just a matter of people learning a new system, a new voting system. There were some hiccups those first two rounds. We've got to get them fixed by November, no doubt about it. I want everybody to be able to vote, but you're talking about not making it easy to vote. All you got to do is don't get a driver's license. You're immediately registered to vote. We have made it as easy as any state in this country. And that's why we've had 700,000 plus new voters registered since 2018. All of those people are active on the rolls. They can show up in November. No one will stop them. If their machines don't work, they can fill out a paper ballot when they're there. Everybody gets a chance to vote. And if you don't want to take that risk, you can order your absentee ballot right now. It'll come to your house in a couple of days. So no one has an excuse for not voting.
2: I would say the Secretary of State did something right, right when the pandemic hit. And he had every registered voter issued an absentee ballot request form. And we saw the highest turnout in a primary ever in the state of Georgia. I don't understand why we didn't do that again, to make it easier to vote during a pandemic. Yes, you can request it on your own, but that becomes an issue that's harder for some folks because they don't have internet, they don't have computers. I would also say that in Gwinnett County, because this is where I live, the elections board six to one voted to have every single Gwinnettian receive an absentee ballot request form. But when it came down to the commission, it was voted on party lines three to two to reject giving people the ability to safely vote from their homes or making it easier. Allowing more people to vote is a partisan issue, unfortunately, and I feel like it shouldn't have to be Republicans and Democrats should agree on this. We should make it easier to vote for everyone and make it safe.
1: Let me real quickly pose questions that are raised by this to each one of you. Nabila, starting with you, the state uses a postcard system to check in with people now. They have to return a postcard that the state sends them if they haven't voted in a while, The state does have a legal obligation to maintain its voter rolls. And if someone doesn't make the effort to return a postcard, how can anyone be sure that they'll make the effort to vote or even care about it?
2: Yes, I know that's a way that people validate home addresses. And I have heard in the past that people have not received those postcards or for whatever reason they go to the wrong address. I feel like we should go above and beyond and make sure that if we're going to purge someone off the voter rolls, that we are guaranteed that they either passed away or they moved away from their home or don't live in the state anymore. But I don't think we're doing the due diligence that this deserves. And that's why so many thousands of people have been purged unnecessarily. The
0: people who were canceled in 2019 had not voted since 2015. They didn't get the postcards because they don't live at the address with a register anymore. That's why. It's all matched up against the Postal Service's change of address database. That's what these vendors do. That's the issue here. Most of those people who were canceled have moved to the somewhere else. So they're not people who don't have the right to vote. They're just voting where they live now.
1: And Brian, for you, back to the double voting issue raised by Secretary Raffensperger. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's analysis, nine one-hundredths of a percent of the absentee ballots would have been represented by those 1,000 alleged double voters. So again, no one is saying that there aren't occasional problems, but is this the kind of proof that a lot of Republicans would argue that the system is just open to widespread abuse when you only have nine hundredths of a percent? even by the Secretary of State's own reckoning.
0: What do the media say? That there's no evidence of voter fraud. And so we present evidence of voter fraud and the media goes, well, this isn't that big of a deal. I mean, look, there's just a handful of votes here. It's illegal. Those thousands are the the ones we know about. And my concern isn't so much double voting. There are some protections in place to find those folks. That's why we know that there are a thousand people who did it. My issue about the widespread absentee ballot use, and this is what the president is talking about. He doesn't want ballots automatically sent to every registered voter because the lists are never going to be up to date with where people are living, who's died and who's alive. You're going to have ballots showing up to houses to people who don't live there or to people who have died, and the person who does live there can vote for themselves, they can vote for that person who used to live there, they can vote for that dead person, and don't tell me there's no evidence of voter fraud. You can't prove that is happening normally without a really laborious process, so that's how it happened. When the Secretary of State's office earlier this year sent out the applications, all of us heard about people getting two applications. One maybe had their middle initial and one didn't. Ballots coming for their dead grandmother. Ballots coming for people who used to live there. We all heard those stories. If people had chosen to act fraudulently, they could have and no one would be able to prove it.
2: The reason that the double voting is happening is because people are absentee voting and unclear whether or not their ballots have been accepted. It's been taking a while for the systems to update whether or not you've received your ballot. It took me a month for the Gwinnett system to show that they had received my request for a ballot and that it had been mailed out. People want to make sure their votes are being counted. And I think that's what this double voting is showing. I think people are just scared that their their vote won't be counted via mail. And so I think people need to be very vigilant about it and make sure that their votes are being counted and hopefully show up on election day as well and make sure that the votes are counted there as well.
1: Turning to another collision of politics and public health, this is the long-running battle over medical sterilization plants in Newton County and in Cobb County, among other places. There are continuing lawsuits against Becton Dickinson, or B.D., and Sterigenics, and it's the Sterigenics Smyrna plants that has perhaps attracted the most attention, B.D., operates a plant near Covington. These lawsuits continue uh, over cancer-causing emissions, and meanwhile, sterogenics has been suing Cobb County over property value estimates. Nabila, starting with you, this brings up the real dilemma in a pandemic of how necessary medical sterilization is, especially when protective equipment and medical equipment are in short supply in some areas, versus public health of the folks around it. Governor Kemp met with the company representatives earlier this year. There was a lot of state attention to it then. Do we need to come back now, both the governor's office and state lawmakers, to try to resolve this because we're just in a continuing dilemma and now continuing litigation?
2: I feel like the state and our elected officials have a responsibility to figure out how to protect people's public health both ways. Yes, we need to make sure that you know medical equipment is being sterilized, but do it in a way where we're not causing cancer at the same time. We need to be a lot more thoughtful about how we approach this and making sure that no one is getting hurt.
0: These are Georgia businesses that employ Georgians, pay property taxes, and provide a service that is crucial, particularly during... Pandemic. There was a lot of concern back in the spring as all of this controversy was going on locally that we wouldn't be able to get clean medical devices because we depend on those services. So, what these companies need are a consistent, dependable regulatory regime. And that means the state, maybe the feds, need to set levels for acceptable emissions, something that the scientists say is safe to the surrounding communities. They should not be exposed to ongoing litigation when they were following the regulations that had been set for them. Now, were there errors from time to time where they went over those levels? Hey, let's look at that. But there were levels in place that they were expected to meet. And if they didn't, they should be punished for that. But let's set a standard, stick to that. And if they do, they should have some level of protection from lawsuits. Uh,
2: Well, we tried doing that with the EPA, and we we see where that is now. It's pretty much gutted. Um, And look, I think that we deserve to have clean medical devices, of course, especially during a pandemic, but we also deserve to have clean air. We need to figure out how we can effectively implement these caps uh, on these emissions so that these factories don't get away with sickening the public.
1: On a lighter note, maybe. Uh, Brian, you are a big UGA fan, and uh, it's about to be football season. Maybe. And hey, Ugga, Ugga the dog is not going to be on the sidelines this season because of NCAA and SEC rules. Apparently, mascots are not essential for some reason, but um, that's the latest on protecting livestock and people.
0: <laughs> well, it's just one more terrible consequence of this pandemic. Although I don't really understand the rule about dogs, I'm not aware of any evidence that they are carriers or spreaders of the disease. So maybe just one more example of NCAA overregulation. But I will say, on a personal note, I am a season ticket holder there at UGA, and. I was only offered one of the games that will happen in Sanford Stadium this fall. And so I've decided to opt out for the year. So Uga is not alone. I will be watching from home as well. And uh, I will miss him. And I will miss being there.
2: Um, go dogs! <laughs> there you go.
1: And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former Deputy Chief of Staff for Governor Nathan Deal, filling in for Democratic strategist Theron Johnson this time, progressive activist and former 7th District Congressional candidate Nabila Islam. Thanks so
0: much to you both. Have a great weekend.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: And you can follow us on Twitter. Brian is at Lord Tinsdale. That's T I N S D A L E. Nabila is at N A B I L A H for G A 0 7. Theron is at Theron Johnson. And I'm at D E N I S O H A Y E R. Our thanks to Kevin Rinker and Stephen Key for their production assistance. And please remember our podcast with up-to-the-minute information on the coronavirus. It's called Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead is your host. And if you like this show, please subscribe. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate us. That's a great way to make sure other people can find us. We'll be back in your feed and in your head real soon with more nourishing political conversation. Be sure to join us and have a great and a safe week. The world has changed